Good morning, Horizon. Whether you're joining us online or you're here in the in the building with us somewhere, my name is Beth Guckenberger, and it is my total joy to be with you in this Christmas season. I don't know if you all are already in the Christmas mood and the Christmas spirit. If you aren't, this building absolutely can get you there. It is a it is beautifully decorated, and I have the privilege on this day to help bring to completion your study of Second Thessalonians. I feel so honored to get this opportunity to share his very last words, Paul's with you. And if I haven't met you before, um, I always say I'm either Horizon's most frequent guest or your most absent family member. You all can decide, but it is a pleasure to be here with you. I'm a storyteller at heart, so I'm going to tell you some stories um, about the ways in which Paul's final words here to this community have impacted my life and have formed the way that I am trying to live this this last month of this unbelievable year as I was preparing to study. Let's start in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 6. It says, "We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly." You could also translate that word as idly who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you know yourselves, you know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly or idle among you. These are his last words, and he's like, pay attention to who it is that you're going to follow. Be looking for the kinds of examples that will continue you on the path that I've been talking to you about. Certainly, uh, Paul was a student of Gamaliel, that real famous, famous rabbi. And that rabbi would have done a really good job making sure Paul knew all the Old Testament. And that Old Testament would have told us over and over and over again what happens when we're idle. I don't know. I have a house full of teenagers. I don't know if you have parented a teenager. You know what happens when a bunch of teenagers have idle time, right? They, they get into trouble. They fight. They might, they might be indulgent. They might be reckless. They're not going to be kingdom producing. They're going to become maybe activity filled, but not necessarily busy about the production of the things that God asks them to. And so this is what Paul's telling them. I don't want you to have unchecked idleness. I don't want you to walk disorderly. I want you to be thinking about what it looks like to follow the right kinds of examples. In 2007, I remember the exact year because I was driving a brand new 2007 Honda Odyssey minivan. In 2007, I was living in Mexico as a missionary to orphans. And we had a friend visiting um, who was a mentor of Todd's and mine. And we had a couple teams there visiting from the United States. And I pulled onto our ministry campus. And this man I didn't know walked up to me when I was parking. And he said something kind of snarky. He's like, well, I hope when I grow up I can be a missionary so I can drive a new car. And I started to open up my mouth to tell him where the van had come from. But our friend, this, this mentor of ours, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, quietly, just to me, you don't owe him an explanation. Just tell him something you know for sure to be true. So I just was like, uh, Jesus is the giver of all good gifts. And I walked away. That was a verse out of the book of James. The man, having delivered the, the barb he was looking for, walked away too. And I was, I was just kind of shook up from that exchange. And then this friend of ours sat down and he drew me on this napkin, a picture of a house and a front, that had a front porch. And then he drew a yard and then he drew kind of like a neighborhood. And he said, Beth, every one of your relationships are going to fall kind of in one of those four metaphorical categories. They're either people in your house. 
They're people you've brought onto your front porch. Maybe they're extended family or accountability partners or like your, your people. They're people that are watching you out in the yard and there are people all the way out in the neighborhood. Where does that guy fall? I'm like, well, he's out in the neighborhood. I don't even know his name. It's like, you don't know people out there in the neighborhood, that kind of explanation. Now, if somebody in your house is like, hey, mom, where'd the minivan come from? Tell them. If somebody on your front porch is like, hey, what, how'd you get that car? Tell them. They might, it, it's an opportunity for you to give a testimony or it might be a chance for them to hold you accountable. But to those people all the way out there, you don't need to tell them that. <clears throat> and I've probably driven that, drawn that house, front porch, yard, neighborhood a hundred times since then. Because the world is like, it's so confusing with social media these days, right? It's so like, we, we have all kinds of followers and friends. I mean, according to the internet, I have like 10,000 friends. That doesn't even make sense. I can't have 10,000 friends. I don't know 10,000, like, I don't know their names. So Paul's telling them, watch out who it is that you're following. Make sure they're not out there in your neighborhood just making it look like it's a good idea to be idle or disorderly. Make sure they're the kind of people that you're actually giving your life to. Todd and I have a large family that we've built through biological foster and adoption. And our most recent adoption, our son is now 18, but he came home with us when he was 12. He came from a government orphanage in another country. He got home with us here in Cincinnati in June, and in August, he started seventh grade at King's Junior High. And when he got to King's Junior High, like the second day of class in his language arts class, they asked him, they assigned the whole class to do a heritage project, like one of those bulletin boards that has, or not bulletin boards, like poster boards that has like pictures of you like growing up, and you're supposed to introduce yourself to your class, because they had come from various elementaries, and they were trying to help them all understand who they were. And he came home, and he was like, Mom, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to tell them all. We don't have a single picture of me when I was growing up. And they're going to, they're going to like, I just met them. And now they're going to all know that I came from like an orphanage. And and I'm like, no, they don't have to know that. And I drew them a picture of the house and the front porch and the yard and the neighborhood. I said, where do those seventh grade classmates live right now? It might be in your yard. More likely they're in your neighborhood. I hope one day some of them are on your front porch. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to Google cute Hispanic baby. And we are going to print those pictures on, on picture paper. And I'm going to stick those things on the bone board. Because those people, we don't need to give them that kind of explanation. Now, we're not framing one of those pictures for grandma because she's on the front porch. But we're going, we, we have to understand that the culture has really confused us. And, it, and it's not like the 2020 culture or the American culture. I mean, this has been going on. Paul wrote this to these guys Thousands of years ago, we've got to make sure that we're trusting the people that we're following, that they're, that they're giving us the right kind of example, that by following them, we're not going to be in a place that will lead us to idleness or disorderly. He goes on in verse 8 to say, Nor do we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we don't have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Paul's telling him, hey, stay in motion. God calls people in motion. He's got a bunch of examples of that, right? He called Moses in motion when he was tending sheep in Exodus chapter 3. He called Moses, Joshua in motion when he was working for Moses. He called Gideon in motion when he was threshing the wheat. He called David in motion when he was acting as a shepherd. He called fishermen in motion to be his disciples. Paul was a tent maker. 
I mean, in in general, Jews were very hardworking and the Greeks detested hard work. They left the really hard work for their slaves. And Paul's like, I'm worried about you, that you might be influenced by your culture. Just let me tell you how God's family works. We, we are in, we are, we are moving forward. We are kingdom producers. Do the next right thing in front of you. God will end up doing the rest. He's the one who's going to count. He's the one that's going to breathe life into it. He's simply looking for people who will express his heart to this world. Saint, Saint Augustine, you know, he said, he's the one that said, pray like it always depends on God, but then work like it depends on you. And so my question was for myself as I was preparing this message, I was asking like, what am I, what is my motion moving me towards? Who am I following? What am I working about? And this month in particular, I've been thinking like, we have holiday travel plans and holiday meal plans and holiday gift giving plans. And we like, am I working? Am I thinking? Am I planning? Am I in motion? Am I paying attention to my spiritual battle plan this month? Am I giving it the same kind of attention and, and, and focus that I am on my other holiday plans? Dave Ramsey, he's, he, he talks about the momentum theory, which is focused intensity over time multiplied by God equals momentum. That's really what Paul's talking about here. He's asking, he's asking them, hey, what are you focused on? What are you feeling intense about? What are you consistently dedicating yourself to? What are you finding yourself dependent upon God for? And what kind of momentum are you seeing in your faith community? He knows that when God's people are focused and intense and dependent and shed those kinds of distractions and they're consistent over time, we'll see unbelievable results. And, and I keep thinking that we're going to tell the 2020 story to our future generations. And the future generations are going to eventually ask us, what did, what did you do in 2020? How did you change what kind of impact did you make? How did you, who did you share your life with? What did you sacrifice towards? I keep thinking they're going to be asking us, and I want to be able to say to them, we stayed faithful as a church. We were obedient, even when we were discouraged. God did all of the counting. We just showed up and did our part. There's a, a weekend every year. It's a thing. I mean, it's not really officially a thing, but it's a thing. Like 150 countries this year celebrated it. It's called Orphan Sunday. So for us at Back to Back, where I work in my day job, that's like the Super Bowl weekend for us. And it's the one weekend of the year when I get the most invitations to be at a church. And I don't make that decision of where I go Orphan Sunday alone. I make that within a team. And one year, a couple of years ago, that team decided I should go speak at this church in Michigan that I had never been to before. So I began to talk to their creative team about the kinds of things I would be talking about on stage and what kind of slides I would need. And we were going to have a table out in the lobby. And it was, it was fun. And the church was um, about four or five hours from here. And so they had a Saturday night service and a couple Sunday morning services. So on a Saturday afternoon, I drove up to Michigan I was getting ready to, you know, practicing my sermon on my windshield, thinking it sounded pretty good. I got to the church, and I walked into the lobby, and one of the the church staff met me there, and they told me that they had a change of heart, and that they had decided that they weren't comfortable with a woman being on their stage. But not to worry. They were going to give me a minute for mission. In fact, three minutes for mission. And uh, they were going to still let us have a table out in the lobby. 
And um, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I began to sin at that point. And uh, I was feeling um, defensive and judgmental and prideful and critical and a bunch of other things that are terrible. And I was thinking to myself during the worship before my minute for mission, I was thinking, I'm going to make my three minutes so fabulous. You're going to be sad. I don't have 27 more. But um, here's the deal. God doesn't really work through a heart like that. (laughs) A vessel that's all clogged up with your own kind of sin doesn't actually make any kind of a kingdom impact. And without a doubt, in the 20 years I've been doing this on stages in front of churches, it was the worst three minutes I've ever delivered. And I knew it as it was happening. In fact, about a minute and a half into my three minutes, I was humiliated, recognizing that they were sitting in the front row thinking to themselves, we dodged a bullet. Good thing that girl does not have the rest of the time. And I was just angsty, angsty. And I sat down, listened to what he had to say for his message, which was lovely. And after the service, instead of going out to the table where I was supposed to be, I I just, I knew I needed a moment alone with Jesus. And I kind of snuck back behind. They didn't have children's ministry on their Saturday night services. So I went into the children's ring and found a dark classroom and shut the door and kind of sat down on the the floor. And I just put my head in my hands. And I, I just knew I needed the Lord. I needed to confess my sin. That's always how everything starts. I needed to be repentant of my attitude. And I needed him to minister to me. I needed him to fill me with what it is that I didn't have. And as I was sitting there talking to the Lord, you know, praying, confessing, I had this thought come into my mind, really out of left field. It wasn't something I authored, I felt like myself. And the thought was I was supposed to call this pastor friend of mine. He wasn't really my friend. I hadn't talked to him in almost five years. But he was one of the first pastors who ever allowed me to speak on the stage of his church, much larger than the one I was just in. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to call him. So I called him on the phone, and bless his heart, um, he answered my phone on a Saturday, my phone call on a Saturday night, and he's like, hi, Beth. And I was like, Dave, I'm so sorry. I can't even, I don't even know why I'm calling you. I've just had this terrible moment, and I'm confessing my sin. I feel like the Lord wanted me to tell you, and I just, I just want to tell you thank you. Thank you for trusting me, and thanks for giving me some confidence in a season where I probably didn't have enough. And, and he just took a deep breath after I finished kind of my really indecipherable rant he goes oh beth i'm getting ready to get on a stage in front of a bunch of college students and i was just asking the lord if i still had it if i still had the ability to breathe a dream into uh, and breathe life into the dreams of others and i'm like you totally do thank you for doing that and i hung up the phone and i thought "Mm." the enemy we'll talk about in a minute he's always busy trying to make a mess out of things and he, he loves to hurt God's kids because if he hurts God's kids, he hurts God. And that's his chief goal. And in that moment, I thought, we gotcha because I'm feeling encouraged. He's feeling encouraged. It's going to be great. I go out to the table, talk to people about orphans. The next day, I woke up, much better spirit, did my three minutes a couple different times, felt full of the Holy Spirit. It was lovely. I left that weekend. I knew God had taught me some things about repentance and about pride and about judgment and about um, humility. And I learned a bunch of things and I thought about it the whole way home to Ohio. This last January, I was speaking at a conference uh, up in Michigan, but it was the kind of conference that drew people from lots of different states. Lots of people, I mean, I didn't know any of them. And after I was done speaking, this lady came up to me and she had this picture of her family. And that happens a lot, you know, multicolored little family. I recognize that kind of picture because that's what my family looks like. And she just was like, hey, I just wanted to meet you and tell you that 
your testimony was the right word at the right time to spur my husband and, on, and I on to make a decision to grow our family like this. And I'm looking at her picture and ooing on over her kids. And I said, oh, that's so fun. I just assumed she had written, read this book I had written a couple of years ago. And I said, tell me about how it all happened. And she's like, well, you were speaking at a church. And I said, oh, well, which church was it? It was that church I spoke at three minutes for. And I looked at her and I was like, oh, God is so good to me. He, he doesn't, I, he doesn't count the way we count. I was thinking 30 minutes is a big deal. Three minutes is no big deal. God's like, hey, actually, here's what I'm looking for. Faithfulness and obedience. Show up and don't be idle. Don't walk in a disorderly way. Confess your sin. Represent me. Talk like me. Look like me. Work like me. Walk like me. Watch how it is that I do it and do it the same way. That, this is what Paul's telling them. Don't count the way the world counts. Just stay in motion. I'll do all the, I'll do all the redeeming and blessing and, and organizing of kingdom activity in a way that is sovereign and makes sense in the end. You, I may give you glimpses of what I'm up to, but I don't need you to strategize it for me. I don't need you to evaluate it for me. I don't be great in yourself or anybody else. Just stay about the kingdom business. Just stay about the kingdom business. He goes on to say, uh, for we hear that there are, there are some of you, some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but just are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that we walk, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. That just immediately implies he'll give us strength for the good works he's prepared in advance for us to do. He'll tell us that in another part of his word. That when I feel like I don't have enough, whatever it is, enough of wisdom, mercy, patience, discernment, self-control, joy. If you feel like you found yourself here at the end of 2020 and you don't have enough to continue to do the good works he has for you. You're finding yourself weary of it. He's like, hey, plug into me. Do it my way. Read my word and follow it. Don't be disorderly. Don't be idle. Receive from me what it is I have for you and extend it out to other people. <laughs> there is not really an exception to doing it God's way. We don't get to do it the way we want to because in some moment it makes more sense to us or because somebody else that we choose to follow is telling us to do it that way. In January of this year, Todd and I had the chance to travel to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. And it was it was a really big deal. I mean, it was the fanciest place I'd ever been with the fanciest people I'd ever met and I wore the fanciest clothes I've ever owned. And we were there talking about back-to-back's work with trauma and the way that we're working alongside the United Nations to impact the, the trauma. This was before COVID-19, but like impact the, the, the work on trauma around the world. And with our delegation, we were given some instructions. They said, here's what you need to do. Have your business card in your hand, like in your hand. And as soon as you enter into a conversation, try to take control of it. Tell them what you're doing first before they get a chance to tell you what they're doing. You want, you, you need, no one's going to ask you, so what are you up to? You got to self-promote. You got to, this is a, this is a place for people. You, 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 this is how you do it. And so Todd and I are like, you know, we got our fancy clothes on. We got our fancy cards in our hands and we're entering into conversations and we're meeting these people like, like astronauts and the person who created the impossible burger. And this guy I was in a conversation with used like wind energy to like 
power a developing nation. And, you know, I'm like trying to get in the conversation before he can tell him about orphans and 163 million of them are around the world and a billion children have been impacted by trauma and here's what we're doing. And, and at the end of that first night in Davos, it didn't feel very good. That's not the way the Bible taught me to, t- to act. I was maybe a busy body that day, but I wasn't actually kingdom advancing. And we went to bed feeling like this isn't how this works. The next day we were walking downtown Davos and we entered in, we walked into the Johnson and Johnson display and I saw a woman who was kind of upset who was working there in the, in the building. And I kind of have a magnet for those kind of people. So I went up and started talking to her and it turns out she was in charge of a panel that was going to happen in like it less than an hour and it was going to be televised and somebody just canceled on that panel and she was trying to figure it out and she was actually using us as outward processors even though we had nothing to do with her. And then in the middle of it, she goes, hey, you don't have anything to do with like biomedical innovation, do you? I'm like, I don't have anything to do with biomedical innovation, sorry. And then all of a sudden, Todd and I looked at each other because we had just met someone from our delegation the day before who had created some like crazy eye technology that was able to detect diabetes in third world nations. And we were like, hey, that guy does though. And we looked at each other and I looked at her. I'm like, I think I might have someone that can help you. So we get on WhatsApp and try to find him. And Todd goes running in the middle of the snow, like in the middle of the city to go find these people and try to convince them to come to Johnson & Johnson. And they did. And they got on the panel. And it was awesome. It was awesome for them. It was awesome for J&J. Everybody was really happy. And like we went on about our day. That night we went to another dinner. There was like dinner every night. We went to another dinner. And we walked in the room and we could hear some buzz going on. And we were like, I wonder what's going on. And they were buzzing about us. Not about our trauma programming, which is awesome, by the way. They were, they couldn't stop talking about, hey, somebody used their relational capital and their time to do something for somebody other than themselves. Suddenly we had an audience to tell people about the reason that we were there in the first place. And that bed we went, that night we went to bed and I was like, this is how God does things. This is how, he didn't make this up. He actually wrote the book. He, in, he designed us for the way that we work. If we want, If we want to see kingdom advancement, we've got to live the way he tells us how to live. We've got to do things God's way. It says it says in in that passage that we are not to grow weary in doing good. But I'm telling you, we have an enemy and he never wearies of doing bad. But God set up the whole system from the very beginning so that we would partner with him to advance the gospel. This month... This is just my opinion. This month and this year, I'm not sure we have had a more evangelistically potential month. Maybe since September 11th, the end of this year, people are willing to to be asked questions and to engage in conversations about meaningful things. And I think we have an opportunity. If we are busy about God's work, doing good things, they're going to ask us, like, where did you get the energy for that? why do you have hope for that? And we can tell them, hey, I actually don't. I ran out like in March. I ran out sometime mid-August. Here's what happened. I ran out and I asked God, and now out of the overflow of the hope and peace and love that God gave me, I want to give it away. And First Peter will tell us we've always got to be ready to have a reason for the hope that we have. If we put our hope, our peace, our God nature on display for the rest of this month. I thought there's really no telling what kind of advancement in the kingdom of like that could be made in the city. 
goes on to finish up the chapter and say, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, in every way. The Lord be with you all. He is peace, the Lord of peace. It's it's his nature. So if I have God in me, I have peace, his peace in me. I can't muster it up. He just gives it to me like a gift. And when does he give it to me? Always, in every way. We can have it this year. In the midst of circumstances we don't like and don't understand. He, he's, he's literally with us. He wants to tabernacle among us. And I like the last part where he says, The Lord be with you all, you, you workers and you slackers. You orderly and disorderly. I actually came for all of you. I want to give my peace to all of you. I want to be with all of you. And he's been telling it that that's his desire since since his birth, since the very thing we are celebrating this month. Go with me into the Bible, into the beginning of the book of Luke. This is the this is the month when we are in that Bible story, right? In the beginning of the book of Luke, we read about a married couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. And Zachariah was a priest, and those priests had duty one month of the year, and Zachariah's duty was the month of June. And it says in the beginning of Luke that shortly after Zachariah's priestly duty, he and his wife Elizabeth got pregnant. And the baby they got pregnant with was a boy named John the Baptist. And when Elizabeth was six months pregnant, that would be about this time right now, about December, she ran into her cousin. Her name was Mary. And Mary had been freshly conceived with Jesus. And when that freshly conceived Jesus and that six-month-in-utero John the Baptist ran into each other, it says in the Bible they left in their mama's wombs because they recognized one another. This time of year is when we celebrate Hanukkah, the festival of lights. Don't let this mess up your pine trees. But Jesus was conceived during the festival of lights. The light of the world came to, to us during the festival of lights. If Mary carried that baby nine months, which we should totally assume that she did, she would have given birth to Jesus during really what was harvest season around the beginning of September, during the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, John will literally write in the Greek that Jesus came to tabernacle among us. It was the one time of year when the shepherds were allowed out in the fields. Normally, you wouldn't want the shepherds in the fields. They'd be bringing their animals who would eat the crops. But during after harvest, what would happen is they would invite the shepherds into the fields. They would eat the leftover food that didn't get harvested. And then they would leave like a little deposit, right, in the field for the growing season to come. And it was when those shepherds were in those fields that the angels came and appeared to them. And where do the shepherds keep their animals? If you have a really pretty pine nativity set in your house throw it out because that's not what it looked like there was no pine bar with like barn with like you know plaid swaddling clothes what the shepherds would do this makes all the sense in the world if you know a shepherd this would make all the sense in the world they would they would create sheep folds they would create natural barriers so like around bethlehem there were all these hills and kind of what we might consider in cincinnati mountains but not really mountains but like hillsides and there would be like caves in those hillsides and the shepherds would use the natural three barriers of that hillside to create a space that they would put their sheep and goats inside then they would light a fire in the entrance that would keep the animals in at night and keep the shepherd warm and he would curl around or she would curl around that shepherd that fire 
to stay warm throughout the night. And I just want you, even if you have to close your eyes for a minute, I just want you to imagine what that, that cave would have felt like. If you've ever touched soot from your fireplace, you know how black it is. Nobody would have ever cleaned out the walls of that cave. So imagine the, the cave thick with the soot of a thousand shepherd fires. Black as night. Now imagine the floor, which would have had the dung of however many animals over however many years. Can you imagine anything so nasty as soot-covered walls and dung-covered floor? And then out here comes Mary. She's riding on that donkey to Bethlehem. And there's no more room for her to stay anywhere else. She has to go where the animals are. And I think to myself, Jesus decided to go to the nastiest place you can possibly imagine. Why? Because he wanted to send a message to them, the same message he's sending us today. There's absolutely no place. Too dark or too crappy. I won't go into it with you. I want to literally come and tabernacle with you in the hardest stories you can imagine. I'll be in the midst of it. I'll be right there in the middle of that hard story. And I'll give you what you need. If you're weary of it, if you've run out of it, of whatever it is that you need, I'll come and make, and in that space, I'll, I'll come and fill you. I kind of feel like almost every time I'm here with you, I reference Moses and the story in the middle of Exodus, so think like around chapters 25, where God gives instructions to Moses to build a tabernacle. And he's like, hey, Moses, if you make a room for me, I'll come and fill the space. Inside of that nasty cave, God was like, I'm filling the space and I'll fill any space from here on out that you want to make room for me in. In the middle of the hardest year maybe you've had to date, in the middle of circumstances that are confusing and uncertain, with things that we can't predict about the future. God's like, I, I, I literally came to give you peace always in every way. Both you slackers and you workers, both you disorderly and orderly, I came to be with literally all of you. I wanted to finish with this last little story. It's, it, it's been captivating me actually almost 30 years. The first time I heard this, I was a college student. And I remember when the testimony was given, somebody read what I'm about to read to you. And everybody was seated quietly like you are. And I couldn't help it. I stood straight up. I wanted my body to say what it was that my heart was feeling. Now, I'm not pressuring anybody to stand up when I read this. But it still, all these years later, still moves me. It's the testimony of a young man from Rwanda who came to know the Lord as a result of a missionary who shared the gospel with him. And as soon as he began to testify to the good news he was believing for himself, his tribe was not taking it. They were not having it. And they began to threaten him he needed to denounce his new Christ, that they were going to, there was going to be grave consequences as he continued to give a reason for the hope that he had, that he... He couldn't act that way anymore, that he needed to follow the things that they had always been following, and that he was he was disturbing them, he was disrupting them. And they told him in, uh, in 1980 that if he did not renounce Christ on the very next day, he was going to lose his life for it. And he made a decision. He made a decision that next day to testify to the salvation of Jesus Christ for his eternal soul, and he did indeed he was martyred 
And they found what I'm about to read you in his effects, in his hut, that he had written the night before. And I think, when I think about Second Thessalonians and the way that Paul concludes it, he's saying, are you in or are you out? Are you going to follow me or are you going to follow them? You follow them, it's not going to work out. You follow, the, you follow the example I've set and the person of Jesus Christ and his peace will be with you and he'll tabernacle among you and he'll carry you and he'll do all the good works. And here is the testimony of this man. He says, I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line and the decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up. Slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence or prosperity, position or promotion or plaudits or popularity. I don't need to be right or first or top or recognized. I don't need to be praised or regarded or rewarded. I now live by presence. I learn by faith. I love by patience. I lift by prayer and my mission. I labor by, by power. My, my pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions, they're few. My guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred or lured away. I can't be turned back or diluted or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. I won't hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy. I will not ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up. Back up, let up. I won't until I've preached and prayed and paid and stored up and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until everyone knows, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. Let's pray. Jesus, may this young man and his testimony inspire us to be about your business this month, to be, to be busy about kingdom advancement, to not grow weary or be disorderly or to be idle, to not follow anybody who's around us justifying actions that we would prefer, that the world tells us is better. Your way is best. We love you. We trust you. We honor you, we listen to you, we, we cling to you, and we are grateful that you have come to tabernacle among us. Come into our hard stories. Come into dark places with us. We want to make room for you in every single one of them, trusting that that which you are about and you are doing, we may or may not see on this side of eternity, but we believe and trust in it just the same. Jesus, with the power that I have and the authority I have as co-heirs together with these saints, I ask that you would release an anointing on Horizon over the course of this month that we may be evangelistic, 
that we may be generous, that we may be sacrificial, that we may be tireless, that may we speak your truth to our family and our neighbors and to a world that is confused and lost without you. Continue to give us peace and continue to give us hope that we may overflow with it. It'll be our fingerprint that we belong to you. And I pray these things in your holy and precious and resurrected name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Beth. You know, I would encourage you as you've listened to Beth this morning, sometimes what happens to me is I'm like, man, yeah. And then I walk out that door and where did I put my keys and where are my kids and what is for lunch? And you can, it can slip away, you know. So if there's something that you feel like God has spoken to your heart this morning, even as I'm standing here, feel free to ignore me and just like let that settle in so you don't forget it. And I would encourage you in the next couple of days because we finished Second Thessalonians. It's one of the shortest books in here, but one of my favorite things whenever we finish a book is to go back and like read the whole thing together so that the bits and pieces we've been unpacking just kind of hang together again. And let God remind you what he's been saying to you in the last couple of months, because it might be, like Beth was saying, that it's prepared you for this month. In chapter 1, when he says that their their faith grew and their love abounded to the people around them. In chapter 2, that they wouldn't be shaken by anything that was happening, because in chapter 3, his word was going to go quickly if they follow him, right? So that we actually celebrate this month that he came as we look forward to the fact that he's coming again. I, I love that he said that in that letter that you just read to us. So the last thing I've got to give you today is just that we are having a celebration of his coming as we look forward to his coming. And we call those our Christmas Eve services. And I was thinking about this literally yesterday trying to figure out. Uh, normally this is like when I'm inviting those friends and neighbors who are kind of kicking the tires. And like this is the one thing they might come to anyway. And well this year they... I don't know if they want to go anywhere, some of them. So just hear this, that we have three days of live services here in the building. It's Sunday the 20th, and then again the 23rd and the 24th. You can register to get seats for all of those online. Because we're doing those all in the evening, that means Sunday the 20th, we do not have services in the morning. So if you come, you sit outside in the cold and sing your own Christmas carols. (laughs) Or you register to come back at the times that we're having Christmas services. And so I'd encourage you, if there's a friend, if there's a neighbor, if there's a family member on your heart, maybe it's just having those conversations. Maybe just asking that question. Like, I love the one you said about, like, how how did you change this year? Oh my goodness, I could answer that. You know, and maybe there's an invitation to Christmas in that. And even if they're not comfortable, that's why we're live streaming. That's why we have it online, on demand. So however it is that you can share that, we want to help you do that this season in the name of Christ and for his glory. So I'll just leave you with Paul's words. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And we'll see you next week.